This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It's the Dearly Departed Podcast, featuring your host, historian Scott Michaels, and filmmaker Mike Dorsey. All right, uh, welcome. It is uh, episode 31 of the Dearly Departed Podcast, and uh, I'm Mike Dorsey. And I'm Scott Michaels. And today we're going to talk about uh, Christmas classic songs <laughs> and the people who sang them. Um, and then at the end, we're going to go over some of the ones we hate. Oh, my God. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> you have an axe to grind. <laughs> oh, my God. I have a list like the size of my arm. That, uh... <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to go into it. Um, before we get into that, though, I wanted to ask you, uh, did you watch The Being the Ricardos? I did, yeah. Did you? Yeah, I watched it uh, the day. I mean, I guess it came out yesterday. We're recording this on the twenty second, so yeah, uh, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, I only had a few reservations about it, and I, I can't wait to watch it again. What, how did you feel about it? I I liked it. I it took me a good well, it took me a good half hour to be convinced of the acting, you know, because you have such mm -hmm. uh, such. Good. You know, we know who these people were very well. So it was difficult for me to get into the portrayals, but I did ultimately. And it took me a good hour to get in. Maybe I, it didn't really grip me until like the last hour. The last hour really got me. Uh, I was hooked. And uh, mm -hmm. but the rest of it, I kind of just, you know, sat through and it was this. Is all right. This is interesting. I love seeing the sets. That was yes. really cool. And uh and uh, and they did throw a lot of information into that one week, you know. I loved how they showed um so much of the creative process. Mm -hmm. You know, the writers rooms and how involved uh you know uh Ball and Desi were in yeah. in that process and and her process. I liked how they would um they would kind of go into Lucille Ball's mind as she's being pitched scenes and she's mm -hmm. imagining how the, how she would play them. Yeah, um, it's real. I thought it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, it was. Nice. I'm glad that they portrayed it in in such a way that you know she was. She always said, "I'm not funny. I'm funny on paper, or I'm sorry, I'm funny in person. I'm funny. I can do pratfalls, and uh, and you know someone else could be really funny naturally. I'm not. I'm funny on paper, and I and I like that. That's and, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And she, you know, when yeah, no, I thought she was pretty good. Nicole Kidman. I still can't get over her face because you know. <laughs> I, I can't, but um, I mean, she's, she's such a beautiful woman. I don't understand why people need to do that to themselves. But um, yeah. but anyway, that's that's. She, me. I thought she nailed the voice really well. I, she did. I guess I was reading today that she smoked a lot during oh, really? the production to get, to get, to get, get that voice. Yeah, <laughs> which makes sense. I know uh, there were a lot of people that were mad that um, that, that that Deborah Messing wasn't cast. 
as Lucio Ball because Deborah Messing did, um, I think it was an episode of Will and Grace. She did a really great, like, send up of I Love Lucy. They, it was like black and white, and she played, you know, Lucy in it. Mm-hmm. And she was great as it, at it. But I think what maybe people weren't taking into account was this was not Lucy. This was Lucio Ball. And mm-hmm. they're not looking for someone who can do a cool impression of Lucy from the show, the character. They want it's a you know it's a serious dramatic role. Um, and I'm not saying that Deborah Messing couldn't do that, but it wasn't about doing a Lucy impression. So yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, I, I remember the hubbub when it, when it first came out who they were casting, and and I guess Aaron Sorkin had it in his mind that's who he wanted from the start, I guess. And uh, yeah. but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't an impersonation. You're right. And Deborah mm-hmm. Messing probably would have been fine. But uh, Nicole Kidman was fine. And she, I thought she she's a good actress. I like her as an actress. Yeah. And I've never seen Deborah Messing do anything serious. So uh, um, and it wasn't a funny movie. You know, there was mm-hmm. it wasn't a comedy. It was a drama. So it was good. Um, I thought it was interesting. It, it covered some of the same ground that we covered in our episode mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. When, you know, obviously their marriage issues which we talked about and it a lot did a lot dealt a lot with the the rivalry between Ball and Vivian Vance. Yeah. And yeah. how they kind of had a fall ended up having a falling out over the way Vivian, you know, was tr- her how, over how the actress, you know, had to wear these frumpy outfits and you know, married to a guy old enough to be her dad or her grandfather even, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um and she yeah. makes the line about how, you know, and, and the running gag is that she's not attractive enough to be his wife. It's like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I loved, uh, I loved, uh, JK Simmons as uh Frawley and I loved, uh, I think it's pronounced Nina Arianda, um, as Vivian Vance. She's so, I, I was a big fan of hers from Goliath, that show she did with Billy Bob Thornton that just, mm-hmm. ended. um, mm-hmm. so I was super excited that she was cast. She's so good. She's a Tony winner. She's legit. Okay. Well, that, you know, I, that was good. And I, I was surprised at the portrayal of William Frawley. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't expect him to be, you know, as likable as they made him in this. In this, So I like to think he was really that way, you know, because they, they he. Yeah. You hate him in the first scene. He's, yeah. he's being a jerk in the, the table read scene. And then they kind of he softens up a bit as it goes on. I thought it was. Yeah, yeah it was pretty sympathetic. Yeah. It was cool heard. when they they walked over to Bordner's, wasn't it? <laughs> when they, you know, they were shooting at the with the Desilu Studios, which was actually on, um, is it Los Palmas or, or no Sycamore, and right up Hollywood Boulevard. So they left the studio and walked across the street, and they were drinking in Bordner's, where we shot our uh, oh, departed. Uh, I didn't even notice. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. man, see, I, I'm already planning on watching it again because I know I miss stuff like that. Yeah, it was cool. Um, and did you see where I think it was? Um. I want to say it was uh, uh, Vintage LA pointed out that the um, the establishing shot of Ciro's nightclub appeared to have been the same one used for, I think, the movie Bugsy. I think so, too. I think, yeah, stock footage that they're selling now. It, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Because uh, <laughs> they recreated the inside great, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess for the exterior, they were just like, let's save... <laughs> A few hundred grand. Yeah, why not? It was a nondescript <laughs> shot. Yeah, so right. uh, 
uh, well, there's so much of that, you know, after, after Tarantino did, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, they, you know, they did that other movie called, uh, licorice pizza. That's out right yeah, now. I that can't was wait 80s. to see that. Yeah. yeah and they, uh, they, they they're, they're putting yeah. LA back again. And there was another show for Netflix. I forget what it's called. That put the Viper room back as filthy McNasties. They just mm. shot that. And, uh, I recently, and then I was, I saw that movie recently last night in Soho, which I loved. And they did the same thing that Tarantino did in Hollywood in London in Soho which is insane because it's always it's such a small place and it's yeah. never it's never quiet there i i really enjoyed the what they do when they put actual physical places back that's right. uh, that's pretty that's pretty cool so um i i uh, i recommend everybody run out and see being the ricardos it's mm-hmm. on amazon prime if you're a subscriber you can watch it now yeah so what so what what do you got going on for christmas mike um, well, there was just a COVID diagnosis in my family, so I am going to probably do a drive-by Christmas. <laughs> just whip, <laughs> wave, whip the presents out the window. Wave and just kind of toss them like a, like a newspaper <laughs> and keep going. Gosh. How about you? Oh, I'm sorry. That sucks. That sucks. Yeah. How about you? What are you doing? Well, do you, well, do you have any like personal tradition? I see all those decorations around your house. Um, you're just de- <laughs> decked out to the nines. Do you have like I, anything? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I put up a, a mid-century tinsel tree in my living room. Okay. It looks really nice. And I have all vintage ornaments from probably the 40s, 50s, 60s mm-hmm. um, that I decorated with. Because I'm, I'm in the mid-century modern design and, and furniture. So, um, yeah, I, I put a tree up. That's the full effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we put our we well, we got everything up and 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 uh, well, you have a Santa hat on the Zoltar. I do. I do. Uh, oh yeah. Well, actually, he's not. It just looks that way. But that's his feather. Um, really? But I do have lights. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a Santa. Hat. It it actually does. <laughs> he's festive year round. Year round. <laughs> My Christmas tree, or Troy and I's Christmas tree, has uh, two shipwrecks: the Titanic, the Edmund Fitzgerald. We have uh, a piece of Jane Mansfield's car. We have a piece of Sharon Tate's house. We have uh, all in ornaments. We have um, what else do we do? Well, I put up the a uh, murder. Yeah, the Tear Sharon Tate thing. May West's dental work, and this is all <laughs> hanging on our tree. And uh, <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken bar- uh, barrels uh, and buckets and. Um, and yeah, and we have the Del Rubio triplets head heads. Uh, I don't know if you saw that on my Facebook page, but we 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 have the wigs that they wore in the Pee Wee's Christmas special, along with the hats that they wore when they sang Winter Wonderland. So um, there's a drag queen in Vegas called James Mansfield who redoes wigs, and I oh, contacted okay. him and I said, you know, do you want to mess with these wigs? And he took them and he reconstructed them and rejuged them to be the Del Rubio triplets. And I printed out their heads, their faces and put them on wig forms and it's really creepy because they do look like severed heads and <laughs> it wasn't intentional i thought it was going to be you know cute and lighthearted, and it looks a bit sinister but still it's, right uh, so yeah that's we have uh we have done it up and also my favorite tradition is i, I thumbed through my uh my 1969 sears christmas wish book when i was a kid i used to live for these christmas catalogs from department stores me and too just flick, yeah and you just flick through them and and put make your list up and you make a new one the next day and a new one the next mm-hmm. day uh, this one has guns in it and, yeah. and real animal pelts what year is it for sale? <laughs> this is 69. Oh, and, my uh, god! Yeah, yeah, you could buy real real cheetah skin, leopard skin, for $700, which in 69 is a lot of money. Um, leopard, 
uh, <laughs> I mean, these are genuine albums, uh, are genuine uh, uh, skins Helps. of animals that they sold through the department store. I love that stuff. It's so bad, but it's so I interesting. Actually, I actually have my grandfather's Sears and Roebuck twenty two rifle. Oh, nice. From like probably the 20s or 30s. That's so cool. Do you ever do you ever um, take it out shooting? Uh, when I was when I was young, I did. When we lived in Colorado in the nineties, I we we went out and shot on our ranch a lot with it. I mean, you, it's just like a little squirrel rifle. It doesn't it's not going to do a whole lot of damage. Um, but it was fun to shoot. I not anymore. I I wouldn't trust it now to shoot. Mm-hmm. But back then yeah, I you did, definitely yeah. need to have it looked at if you're going to if you're going to. You don't do want that. your gun to blow up in your hand. That would be bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now it's just nice to look at. <laughs> right. Oh, cool. That's cool. Um. The um. Do you want? Well, I mean. We're talking about holiday songs. Did you um do, do you remember doing like the Christmas concert as a kid for school? Did you ever oh, have yeah, to do that? Uh, yeah. It was fun going through these songs again because uh I noticed a few that I remember singing as a kid and I'm like, "Oh, this must be why they were on the program." <laughs> like uh Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, of course, is mm-hmm. one uh the secular songs, you know, We Need a Little Christmas. Mm-hmm. And uh, up on the rooftop, click, 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 which is kind of a forgotten song, I feel like, other than I think it's only in kids programming. Oh, I don't really? even know if they still do Christmas. They even do still holiday shows. I don't even know in elementary schools. That, I, well, no I, I don't know. I mean, I don't even have a well, People don't even go to school anymore. So I don't. Uh, that's <laughs> that's Let's do a Christmas Zoom concert. Yeah. But, uh, but no, that was a big deal. I was in band. I was in orchestra and I mm-hmm. was I was singing. So I, I was like all, you know, running around during those concerts, doing all that stuff. But what I, instrument I loved did it. you play in band? It's clarinet. I still talked about this. I feel like. Yeah. I played alto sax. Yeah. So we were both I love, I love being in band. It was a lot of fun. I was that's something I'm always grateful for. My mom and dad let me do that and mm. learning how to read music and and being able to interpret it. I love that um being able to do that. It was cool. Right. Absolutely. Um so do you want to do uh, do you have any hate mail? You know? No. I didn't, we'll I save didn't. the hate for the Christmas songs at the end. <laughs> yeah, let's do. Well, yeah. yeah, no, I, I actually, you know what? Because we decided to do this so quickly, I didn't. I, I've only researched the subjects. Uh, I know that there's a, a little bit of a, a cluster somewhere. Troy saves him, but most of the yeah. stuff is pretty pointless. Um, you, know, you know, I what? haven't got it's anything. The, it's the season for giving, so we won't. We'll hold back on the hate mail and keep it mostly positive. Okay. Well, except for the Christmas songs, we're going to be bashing in a few We're going to bash the hell out of it at the end, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, uh, we'll, we'll start with the ones that, uh, that we like. And, so, um, we're going to, so we're going to do the main feature the right The main feature is what I'm trying to say exactly. It's time for the main feature. So uh, I guess we, we we so you and I have kind of picked our favorite classic Christmas singers, yeah, um, ones yeah. with the big famous hits, and so that's what we're gonna go. We're gonna talk about them and and their songs and uh, and of course you know their the, the ends of their lives. Um, and I guess kick off with kind of the king of Christmas, I think uh, Bing Crosby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's certainly. I know for decades. I, I don't know if that's still the same anymore. That his "White Christmas" was uh, the number one song in the world, like ever. Guinness Book of World Records would always publish that. I looked it up again. It is to this day. It is the the um, the, the biggest selling um, uh, single worldwide in history. It's fifty million sold. 
This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You mean 50, like 50 billion, right? 50 million, <laughs> 50 million units. Really? That doesn't seem like very much. I mean, it seems like a lot, of course, but for like 60 years. The next highest one is Elton John's re-recording of Candle in the Wind for when Princess Diana died in 97. That sold like Mm. 33. That single sold like 33 million. So that's a pretty big gap between them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's actually hard for them to count because uh, White Christmas came out, you know, in the 40s and it was before there were really pop charts. And so the record keeping isn't as thorough as, you know, when Billboard came around and and the other charts showed up later. Um, So they've kind of given it, uh, I think Guinness is kind of, to please fans of everyone, have kind of made it a tie between Elton John and Bing Crosby, but but they're basically saying it's still Bing. Uh, Well, you know what? It's funny because I was just doing research recently on, um, it's related, uh, Michael Nesmith, who passed away very recently, the the monkeys. And Mm -hmm. and Michael Nesmith was quite interesting in his innovations you know he 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 put he basically started MTV and the music right. videos but but he was also an integral part of getting uh UPC labels put on records to keep track of stock because up until that point nobody was doing that so <laughs> the artists were getting these checks saying you had this amount of this amount sold and there was no real accounting there was ex- no you have to accept yeah. it yeah yeah, so so he was an interesting part of all that because he was like, no, we have to do, so, you know, we have to figure out what's going on exactly. And yeah. I thought that was interesting. So, yeah, it's interesting to think how many records may have sold, been sold that are just not accounted for uh, yeah. publicly. Yeah. They just, they have to research and kind of make estimated guesses. Yeah. You know, over how much But it I was. tell you, yeah. 50 million doesn't sound like as many. I thought it would have been more than that for some reason. Yeah. So Bing, uh, he just quick overview of him. He had forty one number one hits at least. Um, suppose in, in addition to being um, supposedly the third most popular actor in history as far as ticket sales go, uh, behind mm-hmm. only Clark Gable and John Wayne. Interesting. Um, but his White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin for the musical Holiday Inn, not as some people may think for White Christmas, the musical that came a decade later. Uh, Holiday Inn came out in 1942 with Bing and uh, Fred Astaire, and it won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. And um, it was first recorded before that before that film came out on Christmas Day in 1941, just 18 days after the Pearl Harbor attack. Bing performed it on the radio for the first time. Hmm. And I think for a while they sold copies of that radio recording until he could do a, a proper um, studio recording of it a few months later. Uh, and it was the number one song for 11 weeks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's really something. I didn't know that about Pearl Harbor, but that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it certainly t- well, it's, it's much like uh, the Diana song. You know, it, it really tugged at people's heartstrings. They needed it at that right. time. Uh, a little bit different circumstances when you're talking about a war and you're talking about a princess that got fired from her job, basically. But <laughs> uh, but beloved, but beloved. And uh, and so, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's like a not a knee jerk reaction, but an emotional 
comfort. I think it was the right people. time and place for the for that yeah. song to hit, right? And yeah. Irving Berlin said like, he reportedly called his secretary, you know, after he wrote the song in a hotel, <laughs> um, and he over the over a weekend, and he reportedly called his secretary on like Monday and and told her to write the song down and said something along the lines of. Um, not only is it, you know, it's the best song I've ever written, it's the best song ever written or something like that. Like he instantly knew when he wrote it, like this is a huge hit. Um, and Bing kind of didn't see it that way. <laughs> just when he recorded, he just thought, oh, it's another song, I think. And then it went on mm-hmm. to be this smash. Um, well, well, he is he was an emotionally vacant individual, so, right, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not totally um, surprised. What else is interesting <laughs> is that when he Bing did that 1942 studio recording after doing the radio recording, and then but then in 1947 he re-recorded it, um, and they tried to you know match up the orchestration and everything as faithfully as possible. But the 47 recording is actually the one that most people have probably actually heard the most, not the not the original 42 studio recording and the way you can tell the difference the easiest well way is um in the intro with like the flutes playing before you start singing there Mm -hmm. is uh an instrument called a celeste which looks like a piano but it plays like chimes and you hear Mm -hmm. that tinkle a few kind kind of bell sounds right before you start singing that's how you know you're hearing the 1947 version and not the older 42 plus i think the 47 version just the quality of the recording is a little bit better Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm Wow, that's that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that stuff. So, yeah. um, so when they when they made, did they? You think they made the movie White Christmas? Um, wrote it around the song that was such a success. A ten that's years my earlier. Guess. That was yeah. my. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's such a massive hit. Almost a decade later, they're like, we're making a whole movie out of this with yeah. Irving Berlin music. You know? Cause, yeah, because if you think if you ask anyone, they would say, oh yeah, that was featured in you know White Christmas, of course. But uh, it was actually yeah, I, like almost ten years earlier. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I remember that song. Well, it's still. I mean, it struck a a, a big chord. I remember my grandma. Uh, my granny, who was she was born in 1889. My God, to think you know to know that. You know, Wait, you like, have a grandparent my, born in the 1800s? Both my yeah, 1889 and 1888 wow. were my grandfather and my grandmother. Yeah, so wow. and that's what makes me wish I would have you know if I'd have thought to to talk to him more about it because they died in the 70s. You know what I mean? I was around. I remember them very right. well. But uh, but my granny, her that was her song, and Troy's too. In fact, yeah, uh, Troy saw to it that the White Christmas was played at his grandmother's funeral because it was her favorite song, and it was wow. like in the middle of June or something, <laughs> you know. But it was like, no, we're playing this, you know, because that was her song. Uh, so so that's really sweet. But yeah, it meant it meant a lot to a lot of people. So Bing was a hugely successful businessman, probably one of the great, most successful businessmen in the history of you know Hollywood actors. Um, he, I didn't know this. He was a principal stockholder in Minute Maid Orange Juice. <laughs> yeah, that well, that of, figures. Of his many, many huge business yeah. <laughs> adventures that he was yeah. a part of. He also had a, a numerous mob associations. Um, unlike Sinatra, wasn't very open about it. Uh, but mm-hmm. he was a he was a bit of a gambling addict, and there were several times, I guess, when he owed thousands in gambling debts to some bad people that wanted that would have killed him if he didn't pay it back, and mm-hmm. had to borrow money in order to do it. Um, so he really put his life in risk, but he was he was just he was an avid gambler and an avid golfer. That was kind of, those were like his two hobbies, I think. And a womanizer, and uh-huh. you know, I mean, he was yep. a yeah, he was a piece of work. He was. But well, you um, want to talk? You want to go into all that? 
Well, I mean, you know, but also what I found interesting, I just did, I did a, a quick, I looked at his Wikipedia page and I didn't realize he was pro pot. You know, he was, he was trying to legalize marijuana, which I think is really interesting of all people, you know, who's probably, you know, hippies and you know, mm-hmm. I hate hippies. Yeah. He was, you know, a pot smoker, really, as far as the, he was very anti-alcohol. Goes. I think he blamed alcohol for the death of his first wife and told his kids stay away from it. And was basically like smoke pot instead. That was, mm-hmm. I think, that's why he was pro marijuana because alcohol was mm-hmm. so damaging. Um, Interesting. Wow. But his son Gary wrote an infamous book about Bing in 1983 called "Going My Own Way," which really, mm-hmm. I think, set set in stone the negative perception a lot of people have of Bing. Uh, basically, child abuse that it was alleged uh, against mm-hmm. all his kids. Yeah, well, how many children? Two of four, you know, committed to did to yeah. you know to to two of his sons who uh, used to, who used to uh, perform with him. <laughs> they they shotgun wounds to the head, self inflicted, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I've never heard anything good about him personally. Uh, he was a great performer, a great entertainer. He was part of that Bob Hope Brigade, who was another one who famously treated people like hell. Uh, they they used to swap girlfriends, they say, and. Uh, um, you know, treated women like garbage and well, like pieces of meat, basically, you know, mm-hmm. ha ha ha. And, uh, and, and also, you know, his, his abuse, the stuff that they say he did, I can't dismiss it, you know, I mean, because it's not like the Christina Crawford thing, which a lot of people just thought was BS from mm-hmm. the start. And, but this, there's a lot of information in there that I don't know. I wasn't there, but I can see being, I can see that happening. I, I didn't know the people, so yeah, it's hard it seems to, say. to depend on which sibling you talk to. Because a daughter and one of his other sons came out. Well, a daughter came out and said that Gary, who wrote the book, had admitted to her that he had exaggerated things because the publisher pushed him to do it because they would sell more books if it was more salacious. Um, and another one of his sons really didn't like Gary and called him a whining, bitching crybaby. And mm-hmm. but then other ones seemed to be more like either wouldn't say one way or the other or we're kind of like yeah there were bad times but we choose to remember the good times you know it wasn't all bad being around him um yeah but Bing even kind of blamed himself in an interview um for not being a good dad and for maybe being too strict with his kids i mean it was a different time my grandparents were were very strict i mean they were very there wasn't a lot of joy you know in around them i mean not not saying they weren't happy people but they were very strict uh you know catholic people and you rule by the uh i don't want to say rule by the fist it doesn't make sense but we weren't strangers to getting getting hit when we were kids getting punished not sure. not uh humiliated like like they say that you know, Bing did to his kids, whipping, uh, I mean, whipping them with belts until they bled. Calling him fat ass and mm-hmm. lard ass and introducing that, him that way to like his professional associates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Humiliating. I mean, that, they said that, well, Gary, I think in his book said that they used to, um, they, they said they, they'd leave a pair of underwear laying around. Uh, Bing would make them tied around their neck and wear it for the whole day. Or shoes <laughs> or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Humiliating. And, mm-hmm. and so that, that's more, that is certainly, I mean, there's something to be said about punishment and it's like, oh, I won't do that again. But then there's humiliation. And that's that's a totally different ballgame, I think. It's like teachers when they used to make you sit in the corner or stand in a wastebasket or, or do whatever, sit there with chewing gum on your nose. I mean, it was just like humiliating. And maybe that was the point. But 
that was the point. It just it just was yeah. a, you know borderline abusive. And as I said, well, it was it wasn't borderline. It was abusive. And um, you know, as I said, two out of four of his kids committed suicide. And also, he when he, he when he died, he put in his will that they can't inherit anything until he's they're 60, 65 years old. Yeah, they get and, no inheritance. Like at least two or three of his kids didn't even live to be that age. Like three of his kids nothing. died before then. You know, so it's yeah. like it's like a, a final fu. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just have not heard very many nice things about him. I would get the, the inheritance thing if it was not 65, but like, say, 40 or something. Like, basically saying, look, you can't just turn 21 and coast the rest of your life on the family money. you got to go do something yeah. with your life and not be a jerk. Yeah. You know, yeah. but 65, come, like, come on, man. Um, Yeah, it's a bit, especially when you grow up in the lap of luxury and then you're just tossed out. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I mean. I think one of the sons killed himself. They said one of the reasons was that his he discovered that his inheritance was gone or something like that, uh, you know. And so that was it. He's, he was already distraught and whatever. Um, but Bing died on a golf course in Spain <laughs> on October fourteenth, nineteen seventy seven, of a massive heart attack while walking back to the clubhouse after playing um, eighteen holes. Uh, his last. Words were supposedly that was a great game of golf, fellas. Let's go have a Coca Cola, and then he dropped dead mm -hmm. right in front of him. Uh, he was seventy. Well, on the way to the with the the the, uh, the proverbial nineteenth hole, right on the way to the clubhouse. <laughs> yes, and right. he, uh, you know, they shipped him back here, and you know his body was handled by that mortuary on uh, on Fountain and Western. It's now like a they call it Covenant Houses for Kids, Runaway Kids, but that's mm -hmm. the same one that handled uh, Divine and handled uh, the the um, Shalimar. It was Shalimar who was uh, Eddie Murphy's prostitute that uh, that committed suicide you know, or off accidentally of a fell five story whatever. building. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and she they handled her, but the the guy who was playing that was uh, a kid that was working at the mortuary at the time snuck a photograph of Bing Crosby in his casket and sold it to the inquirer and now you know there's a picture of, of Bing crosby in his casket all over the world because of this kid who you wow. know did nothing at that point except lose his job and uh <laughs> right. but nowadays you know they'd be raked over the coals and sued and etc cetera, etc cetera. but but yeah this, so there is a picture of Bing crosby in his casket floating around the internet because of this kid it seems to be there was a dispute over how old bing was when he died oh yeah um because the wikipedia says uh, he's 74 and that seems to be the most commonly accepted age um, but the, if you go back and read the original news reports from 77 they said he was 73 and his grave marker says he was born in 1904 which would make him 73 when supposedly he was actually born in 1903 which would well make let him me look at his um, let me look at his death certificate and see what that says because uh, that would well that's the most you know quote unquote official document but mm -hmm. uh Give me a second here. Both Although, the LA like, Times and the New York Times said he was 73, uh, but they were probably both citing the same source, you know, so who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And since he was actually, since he died in Spain, uh, I don't have his Spanish death certificate. So, oh, um, right. So, unfortunately. But, um, but yeah, so, so uh, it's interesting. I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't be difficult to find out when he was born because that those records are kept here. And, uh, but as far as his death goes, uh, well, that would, that would be it. I mean, we know how, when he was born, so we could figure it out. Right. Just... It's, it would be interesting though, if his grave marker has the wrong birth year mm -hmm. and, and he's buried in a Holy Cross over in Culver City. 
just a few steps from Bella Lugosi mm. and Sharon Tate and Rita Hayworth and the Tin Man, Jack Haley. In fact, he's I think he's like right next to Jack Haley or very close to him anyway. But uh, but yeah, Holy Cross Catholic Cemetery. A lot of great people in that cemetery. Mm-hmm. And Bing. And then there's Bing. And, and then Bing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, apparently the last song he ever performed for an audience was Strangers in the Night. He performed it for construction workers that were doing construction near the golf course the day he died. And they recognized him and asked for a song, and he sang Strangers in the Night. And then Interesting. died, you know, an hour later or whatever. Yeah. Huh. Wow. I also didn't realize this. Uh, I didn't know his granddaughter is Denise Crosby, who was Tasha Yar on Star Trek Next Generation. Okay. That one's not on my radar at early, all. But, yeah. Early seasons of uh, Star Trek, and then she asked to be killed off. She didn't want to do that. <laughs> so they killed her. Yeah. Kill me now. Kill me now. <laughs> wow. Um, she does the, uh, she produces the Trekkies documentaries. Okay. All right. Yeah. You're a bit of a you're you're a Trekkie nerd, aren't you? I'm not. I but I oh. I uh, I'm, I I I don't know. Am I might no. I I wouldn't consider myself like a Trekkie. No. Okay. I do watch. I mean, I watch the shows, but I'm not like a hardcore. I haven't seen all of them. Yeah. Oh, and back to Lucy, and I mean, Lucy produced right? it. So that's if it wasn't for Lucy, we probably wouldn't have Star Trek. At least not in the incarnation we know it. So absolutely. Yep. So, look, uh, was he a jerk? Wasn't he a jerk? Either way, rest in peace, Bing Crosby. Well, wait, 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 wait. Oh, <laughs> you for, you forgot Hold to on. bring up <laughs> the most, the most, not, I don't want to say, but it's, Bing as a human being is, uh, is you know, uh, it's up to the gods, I guess, to figure that out or to deal with all of that. But Bing, as the man who sang Little Drummer Boy with David Bowie, that I will uh. never forget. <laughs> the one of the worst Christmas songs, in my opinion, ever recorded. First of all, Little Drummer Boy, I think, is one of the worst songs ever because I can't. As soon as I hear, dun, dun, and it's like done. No, I can't. I can't. Mm-hmm. I, I despise every single version of that song. But him and David Bowie is is just agony, agony to sit through. It's such a bizarre pairing. Yeah. But no, really, I'm sure Bing had no time for Bowie, and it was just a, a grab for, you know, viewers right. or whatever, the network. But it was just a – it was a bad – a weird pairing and a weird recording, and I just despise that song, and I hate that version more than any. There, <laughs> I said it. <laughs> Fight me. Come <laughs> <laughs> oh, I dare you. No, that's a tough song to sit through. Because it's agony. It goes on forever and ever. And um, mm. anyway. Oh, you got your tab. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, still have, you still have your supplies. <laughs> I am just, they're, they're precious to me. They are precious. <laughs> I only got a few left. <laughs> um, all right. I was going to um, go into uh, Andy Williams next. Um, I like Andy Williams. You like Andy Williams? Oh, yeah, like yeah, a lot. Okay, yeah. You know, I I, uh, I feel like he and Bing are kind of the voice of Christmas. They're, I don't know. There's something about their voices that just instantly, and I guess probably because, you know, they kind of, that's how their career kind of shook out too. Because um, Andy went on, not only did he record um, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, of course, which is yeah. I think, kind of written for him and, and part of his Christmas album, but then he did those TV specials in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. They were all Christmas themed. So I think he, they. I saw his nickname was Mister Christmas, 
as oh, a result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had a few connections to Bing. He, uh, Andy and his brothers sang with Bing in 1944 on uh, Bing's record, Swinging on a Star. Um, I like that song. One of Andy's main homes, at least later in his life, was in La Quinta, California, which is largely believed where um, Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas. Um, mm -hmm. Although I think there's a resort in Phoenix that also claims it happened there. Um, and then, of course, and then they were both avid golfers, which is like a running theme for a lot of these guys. I like Andy Williams so much. I didn't. Uh, there's not much uh, uh, about him that I've ever heard that was that was negative, you know. And I enjoyed his specials. He, he's more or less responsible for the Osmond Brothers being mm -hmm. known uh, because he featured them on his show all the time. And of course, Moon River uh, from Breakfast at Tiffany. Uh, was was a classic. I mean, he has some great music. He really did, and uh, I know I, I like him very much. The, the music to watch the girls go by. I love that song. Very, I, but you know when, when he that song, um, most wonderful time of the year. I never really got it. There's that verse where there'd be something something and and scary ghost stories and you know <laughs> lots of good cheer. And it's like, well, wait, wait, what? Back you know? up, back the truck up. <laughs> ghost stories. I guess it's Scrooge scary. maybe is it a Scrooge? Yeah, well, that's what. Yeah, it took me years to figure it out, but it was a Christmas Carol. Mm. But it was yeah, it was yeah, but it was like for I was like scary ghost stories. <laughs> it was just thrown in there like what? <laughs> something else. That, there's a there's a song that they consider. A Christmas song that I don't is is my favorite things uh, by Julie Andrews. You know uh, the uh, really? these are a few of my favorite. They they say that's a Christmas song, and I I can't. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, and, I don't uh, you think know, so. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever considered it that. No, it, they do say it is. Yeah, it's like Die Hard being a Christmas movie. That'll be argued forever. <laughs> but uh, <Right. laughs> what's your stance but, on uh, that? Yeah, what's mine? I don't. I I saw one, so I can't say I, I embrace it as such. I mean, it's tar It's hard because it is, takes place at Christmas, mm -hmm. during Christmas. You know, Christmas season, and there is. I think Christmas music plays at the end or whatever. I mean, but does just because the setting is Christmas time, does that make it a Christmas movie? Open to interpretation. It's not like yeah. Home Alone. Home Alone is a Christmas movie. Yeah, that's the whole point of it is to get home by Christmas or go. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't know that I would. I, I don't know how I. I'm on the fence on the diehard Christmas movie debate. Yeah, I'm not. I don't really. I don't have a. I don't have a uh, any stake in that argument. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought this was interesting. So his um his Christmas album, the Andy Williams Christmas album, what it was called, the, the one that came out in the '60s. Um, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year, which was like his track, his song. He kind of originated it, I think. Um, you would think that's the one they would lead with, but they actually led with his version of White Christmas. That's the first single that they released to promote it. Mm -hmm. And I almost wonder if that's just that kind of show. I mean, that's two decades after that song was first came out. Um, that's, I think it almost shows like how big white Christmas was <laughs> that that was, that that's what they would lead with. Not the original song that Andy became known for. for yeah. Christmas, you know, I guess, you know, whoever, you know, whoever he worked for, whoever his, uh, his studio was, they were just like, you know, I remember I was, 
I was talking to Annie Lennox one time. <laughs> we were talking. Yes. About... <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, it was when they were before the Eurythmics. They were in a group called the Tourists, and she and Dave Stewart, and there were another two people. And I love the Tourists. I mean, they're the kind of a psychedelic band. And I, the first time I ever saw them was in a music video where Annie was singing. They sang "I Only Want to Be with You," that that Dusty Springfield song. Mm -hmm. So when I had the opportunity to meet Annie Lennox, I wanted to ask her something that wasn't like. I really love your work. I want to talk about something in particular. So I want to ask about the tourists. And I said, well, you know, I first heard you when, when you did, I, I only want to be with you. She goes, when I heard that song, I cried because I didn't want to do it. My record company insisted I do it. They made us do a cover tune on the record and they pushed that as our first single. So that's probably what they did. The record company is just like, we're going to use that single. We own it already. Maybe it'll be, you know, become something. Yeah. They were probably like, look, it's a tried and true Christmas standard. Yeah. Everybody knows what yeah. White Christmas is. Nobody knows what this new song is that you just yeah. recorded. So let's lead with the standard, you know, your your cover of a standard and not, you know. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Known. Again, That's probably you know, water from a turnip or whatever that expression is, you know, get it, <laughs> you know, use it, use it up. <laughs> right. Totally. Um, he went on to record eight Christmas albums um, and did multiple TV Christmas specials. I think he did it every year through the 70s and then kind of intermittently in the 80s and 90s. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, he, he, um, seems like he was a pretty good guy, but he had several weird tragedies around him. Uh, first he was, uh, good friends with RFK mm -hmm. and was apparently there at the ambassador when the assassination happened. Really? Yep. And then huh. went on to sing at, at, uh, Kennedy's funeral, Bobby Kennedy's funeral. <laughs> wow. No, I, I've never heard that one. That's interesting. Yep. Huh. And then <laughs> it's crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then also weirdly his ex-wife, uh, after they divorced, she killed her boyfriend that she was living with in 1976, the pro skier, uh, spider Savage. Yeah. Uh, she killed him in Aspen. Yeah. Uh, shot him. I guess, uh, Andy Williams was, you know, was still close with her and was a character witness at her trial and everything. And she basically got 30 days yeah, for yeah. killing this guy. She, claimed, was, it was, yeah. she claimed it was an accident. There was that. I mean, that was a big deal back then. I remember that really vividly when that was all going on. And uh, because they were, you know, they're both like young and good looking people, Spider Savage and, and, uh, and Claudine Langer. And, uh, and yeah, and Andy Williams certainly upped the, if it wasn't for his association, it probably wouldn't have had the, the attention that it did. There was a, I remember this really vividly. There was a, uh, on Saturday Night Live while the trial was going on, there was a, they were they were doing you know they showed like like the slope skiing down the slopes and and they would have people they the agony of defeat when they had the Sunday morning or the Sunday sports whatever it was they always showed the Olympic uh, skier falling or you know spinning mm -hmm. out of control and hitting some kind of snowbank so on Saturday Night Live they had somebody doing a blow by blow of somebody skiing down a hill and then when as soon as they took off you know they they lost their their whatever path and flew into the woods they'd say oh an another skier accidentally shot by Claudine Langer. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then there'd be another one coming down and you hear this pow. Oh, another singer accidentally <laughs> shot, skier sunk. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, it's, she claimed that the, um, that she, he was trying to show her how to use the gun mm -hmm. and, but he was shot in the bathroom and was apparently uh, getting ready to take a shower so yeah, she just got something of reckless endangerment or some some lesser charge is what they ended up convicting her of. 
It's interesting. I mean, you've handled uh, weapons before. And we like if you have a gun, I mean, sometimes you just touch the trigger and boom, it's gone, you know? Yeah. And it just, it, I mean, it happens. I mean, that's. So if it was accidental, I can kind of see it happening because they are so guns could be so sensitive. Yeah. Sometimes but, uh, guns have very sensitive hair triggers. And yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it happened to me once I was at a shooting range and it was like a competitive shooting guns we were shooting with. And they, they mm-hmm. you want to talk about light triggers. And uh, luckily, I mean, I always keep the barrel pointed down range and it, but it mm-hmm. did go off when I wasn't ready to. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, holy cow, I'd never had that kind of experience before. So it can happen, but yeah. I don't know, man. It just in recent news, there was that other su- shooting on set. And, uh, you know, I can kind of yeah. see, ultimately, it's you have the weapon in your hands and you had your finger it's on the you. trigger. So ultimately, yeah, it's it's down to you. But then again, those people aren't, aren't marksmen. They don't, you know, they probably don't spend much time in a shooting range. They don't realize that, you know, yeah. you never pointed at somebody. I know on the movie set it's different, but it just. Yeah, I mean, the rule of thumb is don't ever point your gun at someone yeah. you don't want to shoot and don't shoot someone you don't want to kill. Yeah. So it yeah. goes down to don't, you know, like they call it flagging, you know, when your barrel points at a person, you just you flag, you just flag them with your gun. It's bad. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You never want to even accidentally just in passing, if you're moving the gun from one place to another, accidentally point in anyone's direction. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. with movies, obviously, if you're pointing the gun at the camera, there's going to be a person there holding the camera. Yeah. So you can't get around it. But yeah, yeah I don't know. You know, she got off with a license and I think she only had to do the 30 days like on weekends um, because they were sensitive to her, like being able to spend time with her kids. So isn't that nice? Yeah. There you are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Andy Williams died on September 25th, 2012 from bladder cancer. He was 84. Um, And I think is he the one that owned the place in... um, or is it someone yeah, else who Branson. had the place in no, Branson, yeah, that right? That's where yeah, his the Moon River Theater, yeah. He owned the Moon River Theater in Branson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh and that's what they that's where they say he he's scattered uh in the river at Moon, the, in the actual Moon River in front of his theater. Right. So uh yeah. That's nice. If they ever tear it down, there's there's that. <laughs> you know? All those people they like get their ashes, you know, put in fountains and things like that. It's like, well, something's going to happen to it. It's just going to end up in some drain somewhere. But uh, symbolically, it's just it's uh, symbolism, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I liked Andy Williams, and I love his Christmas album. I, I listen to all his albums. I think he did the best version of Windy. No, I shouldn't say that. I love that song. I love everyone who's done that. But uh, but yeah, I do like I do like him. So uh, rest in peace, Andy Williams. Rest in peace, Andy Williams. Um, Perry Como. Were you a fan? I mean, I like his. I like his. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I don't know. You know. Let's skip it then. Oh, <laughs> don't want to talk about it. <laughs> no, <laughs> he was the one I hoped you had something on because all oh. I have is. He... I just really like "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." <laughs> yeah, I like. Well, I, I like. I like Perry. Co- I mean, Perry okay. Como is one of those people to me that I could skip. You know, I mean, no, I'm, I'm saying right now, I'm just saying 
he sounds like a whole lot of other singers. There's nothing about his voice that was distinctive to me. Every time I hear him on the radio, I'm like, who is that? I would right. never say Perry Como because <laughs> I don't know his sound that well. This has turned but, into uh, a Perry Como bashing episode. Um, no, not at all. I like what I hear. I just don't. It's just not distinctive. Yeah, I know. It's generic, kind of generic yeah. sounding, I guess. Yeah. yeah. He, um, I just thought it was interesting that much like uh, Andy Williams, he hosted Christmas TV specials regularly mm-hmm. he did it for 40 years going back to 1948 like the early early days of television he was doing the christmas specials um and i'll just say quickly he died on may 12 2001 in his sleep possibly from alzheimer's he was 88 88 yes. yeah his career i know that he, it, it was like like 50 years he'd been working in radio and television he mm-hmm. and recording i mean he's yeah he's certainly got like five emmys i think is what he had in his career so he's certainly a significant performer he just never never spoke to me personally and that's not you know, nothing against the dude <laughs> um all right you uh let, let's talk about um a, let's let's get a girl into the into the show here um ella fitzgerald Ella. Uh, who recorded two Christmas albums, uh, 1960s Ella Wishes You a Swinging Christmas and 67's Ella Fitzgerald's Christmas. Uh, the swinging one, the first one was more secular songs, and then in six, the, the, the second album was more religious uh, themes and carols and stuff. Yeah, I wasn't too I wasn't too familiar with her Christmas stuff until until you mentioned it the other day, and I listened to her albums. They're really, I, I mean, she, she can't. She doesn't record poorly at all, you know. Right. I mean, she's 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 amazing, and I thought she did. I liked her Christmas music a lot. Um, yeah, I like her a lot, though. She's she was she's a, a fascinating lady. Her "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" uh, recording from the 1960 album um, is really popular. You hear that all the time. In fact, I was just watching the um, conclusion of the Hawkeye series, the Marvel series on Disney Plus. Um, mm-hmm. And that at the end of the fi- of the season finale, uh, like toward the end, that's the song they play is Ella Fitzgerald's Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It's just one of those standards that's, that says what time of year it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that was yeah, that's a, I, I love that song. It's a, there's a weird part of that song that really kind of gets me choked up. It was something she said, uh, uh, if the fates allow... And I was like, oh, that, mm. that was, you know, and sometimes if you're down, you're really, you know, or something happened, you know, in your life. And, and during that, it just sort of, it, it strikes an emotional chord. I always thought that that was kind of a little, yeah. you know, a little emotional uh, moment in that song. It's a sweet song. So she did this, this really famous ad, and I think it was in the late 70s or early 80s for Memorex cassette tapes and mm-hmm. it was um is it real or is it memorex and she would do you know scat which was means means something to some people but scat is a form of jazz where you just kind of off the cup you off the cuff you just you know scooby doo bop bop that kind no of words, stuff yeah yeah like mel torme she, was a famous scat singer yeah. yes yes and so and and Ella did this and she did this and she in this commercial she's singing into a microphone and then she hits a note at the end of it doobie like that and then the glass in front of her breaks mm-hmm. and then then they play the recording on a Memorex tape with next to the glass and, and it breaks during the breaks tape again. too it pops Smart. apart yeah so the ad campaign was is it real or is it Memorex and that's, uh, that's awesome that's, yeah it was a cool ad it's probably on YouTube but it's a cool ad <laughs> There's somebody that had health issues, isn't she? I mean, she, you know, she lived next to Jackie Stallone. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. Her last home, she lived next door to Jackie Stallone. I mean, as a bananas. Jackie Stallone is another piece of work. But um but yeah, so she she had diabetes and she mm-hmm. had been uh she she her last recording was in nineteen ninety one. Her last performance was in nineteen ninety three, uh slow decline. Uh she ultimately had to have both of her legs amputated below the knee. I remember because she was this was on yeah. uh, uh I, I was past her house every day back 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 then on tours and we, I would see her get you know loaded into a van every once in a while uh, at, in front of her house and uh, ultimately yeah. she died in that house now there was a guy that I used to work with at Starline Tours and he was a musician and he told me this story and it was like one of the greatest stories I've ever heard <laughs> and and I, I can't imagine this guy made it up because it's such a good story and this guy was not a grandstander you know he wasn't somebody that right. needed to brag about stuff but he was a part of a, a band like a quartet a jazz quartet that would, would that would uh, play and they were hired to play at a private home in beverly hills and they were told to sit up in a living room set up their equipment in the living room and they sat and they played for an hour and nobody was there they were just playing for nobody huh. and uh and after their hour was finished they were leaving and they asked him to come back the next day and they said this is actually ella Fitzgerald's house and she's upstairs and she's not expected to last long. So they had her come back. They had them come back the next day. And according to this guy who I worked with, uh, he he said while they were playing, he says when they found out who they were playing, they found Ella Fitzgerald songs. You know, they they were they rehearsed them during the day and they went back and they performed that night. And they say, you know, there's a there's a storybook ending that she passed away during that hour that they were playing that night. Um, but it's a, it's just a, an awesome story that uh, that that you know they didn't even know they were just playing to an empty room and uh, wow. the first night. So that was kind of a sweet story yeah uh she passed away on june 15th 1996 and technically it was a stroke but it was you mm-hmm. know i think i'm sure related to the diabetes issues and she was 79 and she is buried in inglewood park cemetery um which is where my grandparents are buried oh really i didn't know that yeah they're buried um they're actually buried very they're buried at like the south very south end of the cemetery um right across the street from the forum basically okay yeah so whenever I go to Rams games, I drive by my grandparents. And That's play. nice. Yeah, it's nice. Well, well rest in Ella? peace. Yeah, I think that's Ella. Rest in yeah. peace, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, okay, so we have uh, one of your favorite subjects ever to talk about, uh, the Carpenters. Yeah, Karen. <laughs> and Merry Christmas, Darling was their 1970 single, and then Christmas Portrait was their Christmas album from 1978. Mm-hmm. I love that album. That was that was such a great album. I like the Carpenters, yeah. So so I'm not going to hate the album at, at all. But uh, but I yeah I did. It was it was um, it was just one of those comfort. They were a comfort group. You know, they were 70s easy, easy listening, and that was an era that I that I that I enjoyed being in very much. And uh, and they did my one of my favorite songs, Happy Holiday, the, another Irving Berlin, Berlin song. They start off their album with that. And uh, and I like that song a lot. They're they're just awesome. They're they're such a great, interesting people. And and Richard was really another one is quite innovative, innovative with with the recording process and the the, the overdubbing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the Carpenters had they I think they were only in operation until Karen's death in 83. 
And uh, but yeah, they've released several albums since then of Carpenter's music that have been remastered mm. and done by an orchestra, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So um, so Richard is um, you know still doing quite well with new Carpenter's recordings. But uh, they did now one of the one of the songs I don't like uh, from Christmas at all was called Little Altar Boy that Karen did. And that became I hear it occasionally on the radio on the Christmas stations, too. The song was actually recorded in 78 for that Christmas album, but they didn't release it until like a year after Karen died. Mm. So it was just kind of it as a promotion it for the, it didn't make the cut. No, I think they were re-releasing the Christmas album mm. remastered after Karen's death, and uh, and they used it to promote that. But they released a lot of Karen stuff after she died. It's um, you know even her album, her own solo album that she did when when Richard was in the hospital, uh, she decided to cut an album without him, and that was a really bad thing. And Richard listened to it and said it was a piece of garbage, and she shelved it, and uh, and because she was too humiliated by what he had to say about it. That's my interpretation, mm -hmm. but. The facts are she recorded the solo album and she shelved it. So it wasn't until after she was dead that Richard finally released the solo album, which isn't bad at all, and said in the liner notes, basically, oh, well, I didn't like it then. I didn't like it now. But here, for what it's worth, this is what she wanted you to hear and uh, and release the album. So it's kind of kind of a it's kind of a you know crappy thing to do. But anyway, yeah. we have it and it's out there. Mm -hmm. And poor Karen. So um, we love Karen. Is that all you have on the Carpenters and Christmas? Yeah, yeah. It just said, uh, you know, we I miss doing that tour. We every year on the anniversary or the weekend closest to the anniversary, we did the Karen Carpenter tour, and mm -hmm. uh, and we would visit all <laughs> the Karen you know, Carpenter tour. Yeah, <laughs> and, we, and show we had, the house because the house is still there and the apartments that they owned. The, the apartments, their house where they moved afterwards, the the people that handled, uh, you know, the band where the school they were in band, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the Carpenter Center down in Long Beach has her drum set on display. You know, they they have oh, the Karen, Richard, Richard and Karen Carpenter uh, enter, not entertainment, but it's in Cal, it's in it's in Long Beach. It's you know they do proper concerts and stuff. But if you mm -hmm. walk in, they have like the Karen's drums and her lead sister shirt, and uh, and and a lot of their their, you know, the Richard's piano and the sheet music to only just begun and a lot of their Grammys and stuff like that. It's really, it's really cool that they, that they have that stuff that you can see. So we right. used to hit that on the tour too. And then ultimately end up at her gravesite, which had, she, you know, she was moved. She was in Forest Lawn Cypress originally in a beautiful grave, uh, at the end of a hallway. And it was a, a wonderful looking, you know, beautiful grave uh, at the end of the hall and her parents were buried there too and then Richard left Downey and moved to Thousand Oaks I think it is and had Karen exhumed and her parents and took him up that way so now she's in the valley at another cemetery and Richard has space for himself and his family so huh. um, that was kind of a, a weird a weird a weird thing but her yeah, gravestone kind of... does say a star on earth and a star in heaven which I think is oh, quite sweet nice. yeah so, yeah, she died on February 4th, 1983. She was 32. Um, she apparently uh, basically died in, in her bedroom closet at her at her childhood home, which is where she was found collapsed anyways. I think the cause of death was ruled as being related to her anorexia. Yeah, it was heart disorder. failure due to her her yeah eating disorder. Mm -hmm. It's very um, and that movie they did, the Karen Carpenter story. Did we talk? About, did we ever talk about? I that? I don't know if we've talked about that. I, we talked about it on um because our first dearly departed documentary, we did a whole Carpenter section. 
Oh, that's right. We did. Yeah. We went down there and showed all those places. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know that we, I don't know that we've talked about it on this show. Well, they, you know, they did the Karen Carpenter story that was addressing anorexia nervosa for the very first time. And it was a TV movie and it was really mm -hmm. Richard is the one who produced it. And it was it was quite raw in that regard when he showed his parents being, you know, kind of emotionally vacant and uh, and him being, you know, he, he went into uh, rehab for a drug addiction for quaaludes and uh, and Karen's insecurities with her weight. And it was odd because they actually filmed it in the Carpenter's home. They, the woman who played Cynthia uh, Gib Gibson, I think was her name, who played Karen, wore all of Karen's real clothes. When the ambulance came to the house, they used the real ambulance and the real ambulance drivers to wow. uh, to go to the house. And you know, it was just, a, and they filmed her body being taken down the stairs and taken out into the the ambulance in the house that it actually took place and it's bizarre louise fletcher plays the mother in the movie and mm. they filmed on the a&m records lot in the in the sounds in the uh studio where they actually recorded on la brea where you used to work yep. and um so it's pretty it's pretty it was pretty good pretty wild historically movie so i believe the one the recording studio that they recorded in there on la brea uh, i believe that studio is still there and it's kind of known as the carpenter's studio Mm -hmm. um, obviously thousands of acts have recorded in there since. Um, but I believe that's the one that is said to be haunted. It was somebody that you knew that told that story, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. Cause worked I, on I worked, lot. I worked on the Jim Henson lot for about a year and a half, uh, gosh, probably 15 years ago. Um, oh, just to, was originally, pardon me one mm -hmm. second. I just want to interrupt you for just a second to set the stage. Sure. That was A&M records is now the Jim Henson studio originally built by Charlie Chaplin. So right. it, it's been around since, you know, like the twenties when, when there was yeah. nothing but orange groves around there. So it's still the original studio there and Chaplin built it for his own film productions. Yeah, and if you've ever seen the Chaplin film, you know, with uh, the biography with Robert Downey Jr. toward mm -hmm. the end when he's an old man and he's coming back for the Oscars uh, and he's in the, the limo or whatever, or the Rolls Royce or whatever he's in, they pull up in front of his old studio for a second so he can see it one more time. That is yeah. the actual Chaplin studio lot. Um, I love I think that. They, yeah. But now it has a Kermit the Frog dressed as the tramp on the roof. Which uh, is nice. It's a good, it's a good hat, nod. But, yeah. Tipping his hat to the crazy girl strip club across the street. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It, and, is and, nice, it yeah. was a, and Chaplin's footprints are in the cement in there too. They're still in the concrete. If you know um, where to look, they're near, they're between the, um, the restrooms. It's kind of an old out. There's like a building in the middle of the courtyard, which is where the restrooms are. And there's, um, if you know where to look from the sidewalk leading from there toward the entrance to the recording studio, it was very, very faint. This was 15 years ago. So who even knows now you could still see the footprints prints that he where he did the tramp walk uh, mm -hmm. down the sidewalk and that's what uh inspired supposedly uh inspired sid, Gr sid Grauman to do the um Grauman's chinese theater handprint and footprints because he saw that cool. chaplin had done that yeah that's really cool so what about the ghost story so suppose i i believe that it was um in the carpenter's studio but when, someone who worked there i remember was telling me this one time uh, that, you know, it's a 24 hour a day operation. There's bands there and all the time, basically. They'll be recording mm -hmm. at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I think it was the Carpenters when they said like two, two thirty in the morning, uh, the, the, whatever local, you know, employee was working with them said, okay, um, take a lunch break 
um, we're, we got to shut down for like 30 minutes. And the producer, whoever with the band was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I, I say when that happens kind of deal. And they said, we can't record, you know, between like 2.30 and 3 a.m. or something because uh, the recordings always get messed up. And they're like, yeah, yeah, nonsense. And they said, yeah, everybody says that. So we've kept one of the recordings that got messed up. And they played the recording back and they said it sounds like a room full of people. Just voices on top of voices on top of voices. And even though, you know, it wasn't like there's a party going on, but nobody was in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that that is what was told to me while I worked there was that that studio was haunted. So So did you you, I think you told me that before anyone does a recording session there, they play. I believe that that is the other thing that that's all to kind of appease the ghosts. (laughs) Yes, they play a Carpenter song before every recording in that studio. Yep. That's cool. I love that. And if anything else, to acknowledge probably the most famous artist from A&M, aside from Herb Alpert, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Carpenters were, you know, a huge star for A&M. So it's nice that they get acknowledgement there. And Chaplin gets the shout out with the Muppet, with the Kermit, you know, uh, Kermit, mm-hmm. with the Kermit the Frog at the, <laughs> at the front with the, with the, with the hat and the cane. So it's, uh, it's nice that the history is being acknowledged there. I hope that's still the case. Um, also, I believe that uh, George Harrison founded his Dark Horse Records on that same lot. Oh, interesting. In the 70s. Huh, cool. Um, that's that's also something I heard while I worked there. Um, we we saw Paul McCartney there one time. Wow. Um, we used to see every. We saw Chris Cornell. We saw Rod Stewart, uh, Ashley Simpson. <laughs> Not quite. Oh, no, the same really? Level. Oh, my God. How did you <laughs> oh, contain God, wait, yourself? You had me. I wasn't interested until <laughs> you said Ashley Simpson. Um, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was totally cool. A couple of people I worked with went over and talked to him and had like a nice conversation with him. And, yeah. But yeah, that was a wild yeah. place to work for sure. They were always doing weird stuff. And then plus the Muppets were there. Um, I think the main Muppet factory, like where they make, where they, the workshop is in New York. Um, but they also have what they call the Muppet Barn at the Henson lot there where they are working on other stuff yeah. um because they'll do they use that sound stage there to film muppet related things too so have you um, have, i saw that show there called muppet up have you ever seen that i don't they, think um, so no I, that's where i met it, it was where i met jim henson jr there and he and he talks like kermit it's the most bizarre thing but uh yeah he, I, um, when i worked at the lot he was still he still had an office there we used to see him it's a really nice somewhere. guy yeah but this muppet totally. up is is improv and it's all you know they have like a cast of six people and it's in a slew of pro, uh, props and puppets and somebody throws out an idea and they they do the muppets but not the famous muppets because it's filthy i mean it's really <laughs> filthy it's really edgy and mm-hmm. uh, and very very funny but it is it is a proper muppet production without any of their big names and you know say jim jr was there so um but it's fascinating i don't know if they've ever done a documentary on that probably wouldn't let them but uh because people would be <laughs> right. upset <laughs> uh-huh. it's good it's good stuff yeah so rest in peace karen carpenter next up uh nat king cole who recorded uh, an album in 1960 uh same as uh, ella fitzgerald's uh first album uh his album was called the magic of christmas uh mm-hmm. and it is the only christmas album that that cole ever re- released um, and what's interesting is his most famous Christmas song, which is now like one of the most famous song Christmas songs ever called The Christmas Song, uh, was not on that album. <laughs> uh, hmm. They did not record it until a year later. And it ended up being such a huge hit that when they reissued the Magic of Christmas album in 63, a few years later, um, they renamed it The Christmas Song and added that track to it because um, it had become such a huge smash hit by that point. 
It is, yeah, it's the definitive version, most certainly. And and a lot of people don't even know it's called the Christmas song. But they would right. say, you know, oh, the chestnuts roasting on open fire, that one. Right. And right. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's it's funny. But yeah, Nat certainly had has the most recognized version of that song, um, which is also interesting because it was written by Mel Torme, not even written by, you know. Oh, I didn't know just, that. Uh, yeah, Mel Torme wrote it, made a fortune on it. But, no uh, but the definitive recording was Nat King Cole's recording. Um, and if Bing owned the 40s and 50s when it came to Christmas music, uh, Nat King Cole owned the 60s. It was the biggest selling Christmas album of the decade, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, was his. And it's nice they feature him on the on that big mural on the side of Capitol Records. Uh, right. I love that. I think the that's so The house that cool. Nat built, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's neat. And he, he was uh, he was born in Alabama and always into music, came to Los Angeles, and of course we know became very successful. Very mm-hmm. successful in a very short period of time because he died really young. Right. But he, he had, uh, he had uh, very famously purchased that home on June Street in Hancock Park. And uh, June, Hancock Park had, you know, for the old people, the old family people in Hancock Park, you know, people that had old money, people mm-hmm. that have inherited them, houses that have been in the same families for, you know, 80 years, um, still have the documentation that when you bought a house in Hancock Park, there were, you know, no Jews and no blacks was literally in the paperwork. For the and, Homeowners uh, Association that, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, was the first the first black person to move in. And then there's the story of about you know somebody burning a cross on his lawn i don't know if that's true but uh he certainly had a um an issue with yeah they with they wanted moving. him out and were very vocal about it yeah yeah there's and, that uh, famous there's that famous story about them they came and knocked on his door and said we don't want any undesirables in this neighborhood and he said i don't either and you know, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know if I see any. Yeah, I love that story. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, he he certainly anyone that you know of of color, anyone you know back in that period of time had uh, uh, you know a lot of other issues aside from just trying to break into the industry, which is hard enough right. to do to make that you know that kind of successful where everyone was buying their records and having them in their record collection was a a, a bigger accomplishment than a lot of other people uh would uh could claim you know so- yeah um my grandfather who grew up in glendale uh he um uh he told me that he he told me when i shot my oiler house documentary which was about him and the architect richard neutra uh he told me when we were filming that that uh he growing up in glendale and being in la he and my grandma when they were kind of first together they would go see nat king cole play at a club uh he said it was on normandy uh and i believe he specifically said in the hollywood area so i haven't done the research to find out where that would have been but yeah he, my grandpa was really proud of the fact that he saw nat king cole play before he was super famous yeah. um probably would have yeah. been the 40s would be my guess yeah yeah normandy that would be probably around wilshire because i don't think there were any clubs around normandy and hollywood at that point mm-hmm. but there were because it was so close to the ambassador hotel uh sure. and that's there were a lot of nightclubs around that area i think so that's that's fascinating uh uh that would have been a real that would have been a real uh, accomplishment that would have been something to see they yeah, real, for sure. Real How memorable. In your, yeah. I mean, did, did, I love the before they were famous type of stories, you know, and what a great one to have. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother, when she, the last few years of her life, she had really bad dementia. She had Alzheimer's and sundowners, I think, um, which is just a horrible combination. And so, you know, at the end, she didn't really remember much, obviously. Um, but she was such a big jazz music fan when she was younger. She still knew all the jazz songs. And I remember she sang Stardust for us one time, which was a huge Nat King Cole hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if she didn't know who, who was in the room with her, even though they were, you know, her fa- lifelong family members, she yeah. still remembered every single word of Stardust. Isn't that funny? <laughs> just, music is so powerful. The, the power of music, wow. 100%. Yeah. Well, what is Sundowners? I've never heard of that. Sundowners is, uh, I believe, a form of dementia that uh, it, it, um, impacts you more late in the day, which is why it's called Sundowners. So people with Sundowners might be great in the morning and middle of the day, and then, you know, getting toward the end of the day, they start to get foggy. Hmm. That's how I understand it. Um, and I think Alzheimer's kind of affects you all the time. So to have both yeah. at the same time is a bad combination. So Wow. Yeah. Nat, of course, was a big-time smoker, big-time yeah. smoker, cigarette smoker. And uh, and ultimately, they claimed him. And he died on February fifteenth, 1965. He was only 45 years old um, in 65. Yeah. It's, it's so sad. And, uh, you know, very famously had a daughter, Natalie, Natalie Cole, who actually passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, and he had a son who passed away of uh, HIV, et cetera. They, they're buried in that's buried in Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills, down the same hallway as um, Clara Bow and George Burns and, and Gracie Allen and mm-hmm. Alan Ladd. And he's got one of those cool uh, signature markers. It's his signature on this big on the big wall in the mausoleum. That's his autograph. I mean, I've since looked at it, and it is his autograph. So they, I like when people do that, mm-hmm. when they put their autographs on their graves. It's kind of neat. But, um, yeah, but yeah, that so is cool. That's, so he's at uh, uh, in the Freedom Mausoleum at Forest Lawn, Glendale. Um, so rest in peace, Nat King Cole, and um, we wanted to next talk about uh, Burl Ives. Interesting guy, I think. Yes. I mean, an Academy Academy Award-winning actor and singer um, who just kind of did a little bit of everything, it seems like. And was very successful at it, too. Yeah. He, um, yeah, of course, I, I mean, he's been in those classic movies. He was in East of Eden with Jim, with James Dean. Mm-hmm. He was in, uh, Cat in a Hot Tim Roof. He was in, um, well, he won the Oscar for a movie called, uh, The Big Country. I've not, I've never seen that. So I don't he know He won that supporting one. actor. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Yeah. But, but to baby boomers, it would be the, uh, the narrator of, of the Rankin Bass show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yes. It, uh. It was, um, it's a, it's a, I mean, it was classic growing up. It was just a literal classic. And, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, as, it's as classic. I mean, I think it's as, as classic as It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> or, or yeah. uh, you know, or, or the, um, uh, the Christmas Story or whatever. The... What you'd wait a year to see that 25-minute little piece <laughs> of film, you know, right. that stop-action uh, animation, mm-hmm. and uh, which was really fascinatingly kind of, I don't want to say ripped off, but the 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 Elf movie, you know, they they. I, I was think watching one of those movies. That. I think we talked about that, that made on, us. on another episode. Yeah, we. I think we talked about this. Yeah, how they. Yeah, the movies that made us on Netflix. I that mean, they was almost fascinating. They almost didn't get to finish the movie because they, <laughs> they didn't did clear it without permission. <laughs> right. I think you they know? thought they had the okay, and they didn't. And then it was, and Buddy's outfit was basically like a replica. <laughs> 
yeah. of you know the same color and everything. They're they're trying to figure out if there was a way that they could like digitally change the color of his outfit to make it less. Le- I mean, yeah, it's pretty wild. I don't think they actually did get permission, but they made it dif- different enough. But I don't know if Rankin Bass ever signed off. I can't on remember. It. Uh, I I I think they worked something out because I don't think the studio would have let them finish. And that was horrible because John Fa- that was John Favreau's I think first directing film, and he um, I mean it would have look at the career he's had since then it would have just stalled him out so bad if <laughs> and look at what a huge hit that became and yeah. Will Ferrell wasn't really seen as much of a movie star at that point either and it, it launched him as a movie star like it launched these crazy careers that would have never happened if if they had had the production canceled halfway in because they didn't get the rights. It's, I mean, it's it's wild to see a movie that's come out in, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, it's considered a Christmas ca- classic, you know, like that one is. Yeah. Uh, like and Elf. that's, Elf is one where the minute I saw it, I was like, this is a classic. You, kn- yeah. you knew right away. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and so, um, Burl Ives narrated Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger as the, uh, as the snowman mm-hmm. that, uh, and, um, and, and that was made in 64, that that special and I, now Troy was just telling me they redid it recently digitally uh, like frame by frame and I don't know where he saw that but they actually redid it again I don't know why why would but you they do redid that? it I don't know they it had something to do with the the process I have to ask Troy about that later huh. in fact we should probably you know uh, I, I don't know the point of it but it was to add another scene that wasn't there or mm-hmm. that they originally into, I don't know I just leave it just leave it you know the uh, the island of misfit toys was awesome uh, right. I loved I loved it loved it I, I, it is a you're going to th- thing it is a always a question of when does an homage become just ripping off yeah you know and like uh community did a whole episode that was in that style that stop motion rudolph the red-nosed reindeer style they did a whole episode like that but that was a comedy show so it could have it was parody yeah i guess elf you couldn't say is parody it was just straight up (laughs) taking taking the look (laughs) Uh, seeing someone seeing Elf for the first time that wasn't around in 64 would think that Elf came up with it. And they would watch the special and going, wow, you know, that's really, (laughs) you know, that's really something. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what a coincidence. (laughs) Um, So uh, uh, Burl Ives, his recordings of A Holly Jolly Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer um, came out of that special. And those recordings now have become on their own. classic Christmas song recordings. Um, And uh, he passed away on April 14th, 1995 uh, from oral cancer. Um, He was a, I guess he smoked a lot of, smoked pipes a lot throughout his life. And he was 85. He was 85. I go, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out about him. He, towards the end of his life, he did a movie called the man who wanted to live forever. And this is about a man who who literally wanted to live forever, and he was buying, he was harvesting organs from people who weren't dead yet, mm. <laughs> like like wow. like arranging for their deaths so wow. he could have their organs so he could live together, which is a really fascinating <laughs> uh, idea. But he was the voice of something. There was there was a, an attraction at Disneyland called uh, America Sings. 
And it was narrated by an eagle called Sam. And it was narrated by Burl Ives. And it was called the theater where it was in. You probably, you grew up here, so you remember like the, the Carousel of Progress, that round yeah. theater that was by Autopia. Yep, I remember and, it. It was uh, still there when I was yeah. growing up, yeah. So America Sings was this was this production within that that theater, which spun, which literally mm-hmm. turns around as the Carousel right. of Progress. And two weeks after it opened, um, there was a woman named Deborah Stone. She was a Disneyland employee. She was crushed to death. She was the first Disneyland employee to ever be killed on the job in that theater a week or two weeks after that show opened in uh, in Disneyland. Her name was, was she Deborah was crushed Stone. by the Carousel. Yeah, she got she got oh. stuck between a wall and the moving wall right. that was coming up to it. So so she's standing here and this thing is moving and boom, she you know right when it's supposed oh. to pass by. Uh, so she was there had been people killed at Disneyland before that, but never an employee. Hmm. That was the first time an employee was killed in Disneyland, and they shut down the ride for two days. I think. Well, I would I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't knowing just, Disney. It was not a tribute. I mean, they were just trying to <laughs> scramble out and how to get that thing opened up again, you know. But, um, but the way it was described, there was somebody that was in the audience, and he said, uh, he said he looked to the right and saw what he thought was a child being pulled between the platform and the wall, and heard a scream, um, which is fascinating. That was in the newspaper uh, reporting oh. that death. But, uh, but yeah, there's a weird Burl Ives trivia question for you. So he was alive, too, when that happened. He, he lived for another 25 years after that. So wow. Burl Ives, go figure. Burl Ives. Um, all right, so I wanted to throw a, a little curveball in here for our, our last one, and <clears throat> that, is, uh, that is Alvin and the Chipmunks. um uh, and the chipmunk song christmas don't be late um (laughs) so the the chipmunks uh you know that that song was recorded of this same era that we're talking about it was actually recorded in 1958 Um, oh that early i thought it was gonna say mid 60s wow you would think but no it was recorded before there was any cartoon chipmunks or anything like that so it it basically launched Alvin and the Chipmunks, which I didn't realize. I thought they were already established by the time the song got made. But um, uh, uh, Ross Bagdasarian, who was the guy that created the Chipmunks, and he, his stage name was Dave Seville, who is you know their their like dad or whatever on the show, David Seville. And so he was a, a singer, a songwriter, and an actor. Um, he, um, had done previously done, he, he liked to do novelty songs. And so he had figured out, a, a, he'd done a novelty song, I think earlier that year or the year before called, I think the witch doctor, uh, about oh, a God. guy who, oh, a guy who can't, about a guy who can't find love. And so he goes to see a witch doctor. And that was the first time that Ross, um, figured out a way, his technique of speeding up the recording to make the voice sound higher pitched, which is of course how the chipmunks how they do those voices. I didn't he, know that. A witch doctor, that was a big, remember that ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, tang, walla, walla, bing, bang. That was, <laughs> that was a big song, yeah. So um, I didn't know that was Dave Seville as well. It's wild. And so he, he, he figured out that recording technique. He did that song. It was a big hit. They wanted more. You know, the, the, uh, the record label wanted more of them. And supposedly he was driving through Sequoia National Forest and he almost hit a chipmunk with his car. And that <laughs> gave him the idea of the chipmunks. And he was like, I guess he thought, oh, that sped up voice could sound like a chipmunk talking, so let's do something. 
Um, so he released the song in 1958, and I mean, there was no chipmunk animated idea of this happening. That didn't come around for a, a few more years. I think 60 or 61 is when the chipmunk animated series, like the first attempt at it, came out. Um, but it sold 4 million copies in the first two months. It was number one on Billboard. It knocked off the Phil Spector song, uh, To Know, it, to know Him Is To Love Him by the Teddy Bears. Um Wow. And yeah, it was it wasn't a couple of years? I think it was yeah, sixty one that they started doing the the thing. But here's what's interesting. So Bagdasarian was a, a Armenian American. Um, his earliest uh, one of his early songwriting credits was "Come On to My House," which Rosemary Clooney made famous. He wrote that from White Christmas. Interesting. Yeah. He also had had he'd been an actor and had bit parts. He had a small part in Stalag Seventeen, for example. And this is my favorite one. Uh, my favorite film of, of all time is Rear Window by Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Bagdasarian is the piano player neighbor. Oh, how interesting. Who's struggling to write his next hit song, and he writes the song Lisa. And there's a bunch of scenes with him. There's one where he comes home drunk and collapses, and he has a party next door, and eventually he ends up with Miss Lonely Hearts at the end. Wow. But yeah, that is that is basically Dave Seville. <laughs> Wow, that's there. so cool. I had no idea. I had no uh, yeah. idea. Does he get screen credit for that? I mean, he had lines. I would think he did. And and, and that's, um you know, how Hitchcock would always put himself into his movies. That's yeah. that that's where Hitchcock put himself in the rear window. Hitchcock is in his apartment with uh, Ross Bagdasarian, uh, and Hitchcock is winding a clock on the mantle. I've got to see that again. I was just looking at, like, a Hitchcock collection to, uh, to watch over. I haven't seen that movie in probably 20 years. I have to really... I have to check that out. And I think I think I have it. I think they just came out with the 4K disc yeah. version too. Um, yeah. yeah, it's great. So, unfortunately, uh, he, Bagdasarian Bagdasarian died from a heart attack in 1972. He he was only 52 years old. Wow. So he didn't. I mean, we're still talking about it. You know, 50 years later, 40, you know, 50 years later now. What happened was his son, uh, Ross Bagdasarian Jr., I think is his name. His son took over the franchise, basically. Mm-hmm. His son got a law degree and kind of took over the family business and ended up buying the rights uh, off uh, uh, from his siblings in the 90s. So all the chipmunk stuff that happened in the 80s, 90s, up till today, the, the more recent movies they've done, that's all been the son has kept that business going, basically. Hmm. Yeah, that was a big TV show. I remember watching that cartoon when I was a kid. Me too. That was, a, that was so popular. Yeah. Yep. It's great, Alvin. Hmm. Um. <laughs> uh. And then uh, this is a, like a funny little piece of film trivia. Uh, I love it in Rocky Four when mm-hmm. they get to the cabin in Russia to do his like final training before the big fight with the Russian. Uh, Polly is listening to that song, that chipmunk song. I got oh, his really? headphones while they're hanging out and chilling in this uh, like living room area, this cabin. Yeah, I always <laughs> thought that was funny that Polly's listening to that song. <laughs> um, so yeah, there you go, the the Chipmunks and Dave Seville. That's interesting. I didn't know that about Seville. That's. Uh, do you know where he's buried? I wonder where he's buried. Do you know? Uh wait, I do. I looked that up. Hold on. According to Find a Grave, he is buried at Chapel of the Pines Crematory in Los Angeles. So he was, I mean, Chapel of the Pines is mostly storage. Uh, they, um, it's right on Wilshire by, by Angeles Rosedale. Hmm. And they do tons of cremations and they have storage rooms beneath just stacked from floor to ceiling with people's cremains. But they have a really small cemetery itself. 
mm-hmm. for for actually you know display quote unquote. But there there's a ton of people underneath uh, underneath that. We actually got in there once and the door was open and uh, and we took some pictures down there and and I wish I would have had more nerve because I would have gone up and down with the names and and show you know trying to figure out who was down there because that's sort of the final disposition on their death certificate say Chapel of the Pines. But like Stephen Stucker, the guy from Airplane who played Johnny, mm-hmm. his was Chapel of the Pines. But you, to get somebody out of there and buried somewhere else, you have to go through this whole legal process. And, and wasn't that where ex- the isn't that where the Frankenstein actor was? We talked about that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We sure did. Yeah. Was that the same and place? Because it was a similar yeah. situation. He he laid unclaimed for like twenty years or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, you know, Chapel, Inglewood has one of those too, though. Inglewood has, when you first drive into Inglewood in the main entrance on the left, there's, there's the chapel. And then, but underneath that chapel is another slew of storage rooms of people that aren't even buried, just, just there because I know they're paying the storage fee, but, uh, but they're not, they're not out in the world, like seeing on display. Um, it's kind of interesting. But uh, fascinating, fascinating. So Dave Seville is there, but we don't know if he's on display. He might be just being stored there. In storage, yeah, who knows? Yeah. It would be weird, though, that if his family is still around and they still have, obviously, still making quite a bit of money off of the franchise, why wouldn't they have taken care of his remains you would think you know, I don't they, think there yeah, was any I don't think there was any bad blood or anything like that so no weird, some people right? just don't give a care some people just don't care that's true yeah. uh, it's it's not high on there and also some people just have them like like well Larry Tate you know uh the guy that played David White you know he died and it wasn't until like 25 years later he ended up at Hollywood Cemetery in a in a you know in a niche that's you know visible with with that's decorated with all of his artifacts so you know sometimes people keep them at home until they die and then they mm-hmm. want to be with them doing that app that i do that death a day app uh, i every day i'm finding somebody and it's always like cremated to residence what happened you know i want to know where they are and uh, it just says it's all it says cremated to residence or right. know, so or, it's sitting on yeah. someone's mantle somewhere yeah yeah who knows yeah. right um, all right. Do you want to get into worst Christmas songs? Oh, you know I'm dying. Now you've been to. waiting. You've been well, fired up. I'll go into ready s- to go. I'll go into some good ones first, though. I, I'll well, go into some of my favorite ones. I just wanted to say up front that it, there, I think the problem that I have with most Christmas songs, especially ones recorded post like 1970, is they're done so cynically. It's the it's a cash. It feel, always feels like a cash grab. A lot of these pop groups that put out albums, it's kind of like the. It's almost like the record label made them do it. Kind of a mm-hmm. deal because it makes money, you know. Um, it's kind of like what Bill Nye's character makes fun of in Love Actually. He's playing like a rock star that's put out this same thing. He's reworked one of his classic hits to be a Christmas song, and he's telling people it sucks. <laughs> it's terrible, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but he, they did it because it's you know they need because they'll make money. So I, that's how I feel about a lot of these songs, and I'll probably how I'm going to feel about a lot of the ones you're going to talk about. Well, they, I mean, they did do that album in the 80s called A Very Special Christmas, where those people covered, you know, the Eurythmics, Bruce Springsteen, the Pointer Sisters. I mean, they, I think it was done for a cause. Is that where Springsteen I, came up with the Santa Claus is coming to town? Was that his thing? Which is up there and one of the ones I hate the most, because it sounds like he's taking a dump the whole time. You know? <laughs> sounds like he's straining. <laughs> But uh, Annie Lennox or the Eurythmics did uh, uh, Winter Wonderland, which is one of my favorite songs, mm-hmm. Christmas songs. I think uh, um, 
Zoe, no, he did Merry Christmas Baby. That's what it is. Bruce Springsteen did. Whitney Houston did Do You Do You Hear What I Hear, which I think is a really good version of it. Uh, I like that a lot. And so uh, there were some good songs in it. I really, some of the really, there were some pretty clinkers. <laughs> there was a lot of clinkers in there too. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I know what you're saying. We got to create a Christmas one in there. Um, and then they become accidental, I think, super hits. Like Troy, when he when he hears that Mariah Carey song, he wants to murder. I mean, he yes. wants to murder. Yes, that is near <laughs> at the top of my list. And that's and speaking of love, actually, that's in love, actually. Oh, is it really? <laughs> they perform it as the um uh, as the uh, the kids perform it as part of the school show at the end. Yeah, it's like kind of the finale, basically, is that song. I don't see. I don't mind it. I think it's a cute <laughs> song, but it's yeah. just it's but it sets people off. It's been into- it's been so overplayed. I think is the problem. Yeah. 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 What is it? This is a couple of years ago. She was on the Macy's parade. And, uh, and that's the, I don't, and that's the, I don't want a lot for Christmas song. All I want is, is you and that song. Yeah. All I want for Christmas is yes, you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. And they had her singing, uh, on the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade, uh, a couple of years ago on a float on that, on a loop. And she was lip syncing. She just gave up. <laughs> during it she just like stopped <laughs> it's on youtube it's kind of funny That's but she just awesome. like screw this she's such I hate a little diva i love it yeah she <laughs> she's really hilarious is. she really is <laughs> she was on a show once and i knew somebody that worked on the show and she was uh, a guest on this talk show and she would uh, just sit there in her chair and she would go like this and the assistant would come running up with a tray with like three different drinks on it yes. and she wouldn't even lift her eyes she would just you know like, like <laughs> drink out of one of these drinks that she wanted. <laughs> she would just tilt her head and, you know, the, the assistant would come running Amazing. with the drink. It's kind of, I love that story. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that's one of those ones that people really uh, like or don't like big time. Yeah. I like personally, I love, uh, I love uh, the Ronettes when they the Phil Spector Christmas album, I think is a fantastic album. Mm-hmm. And they did a, a, a Winter Wonderland, I think, and Sleigh Ride. I think Sleigh Ride is my number one Christmas favorite song. There's never a version I don't like of that with, right. you know, let's hear those sleigh bells ringling, jing, jing. I love that song. I'm a sucker for like instrumentals and uh, big orchestrations. So I do, I do love the Sleigh Ride song. And I think the Ronettes do a really fun version of that. I think it's up there too. And uh, speaking of uh, Phil Spector, uh, the, one of my favorite songs kind of of that era and that genre is the Darling Love Christmas Baby Please Come Home recording. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spector yeah. did. If you ever, um, one of my favorite documentaries ever is 20 Feet from Stardom, and they do an excellent job of covering that whole story and how Letterman, you know, started bringing her on the show every year as a, as yeah. a tradition. I think that's so cool. Um, okay, so stuff you don't like. Let's hear it. <laughs> Unload, Scott. I like Santa Baby, kind of, by Eartha Kitt. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a fun song, fun novelty song, really. And uh, I don't like Madonna's version of it. I think she, I think that um, she did a substandard version mm-hmm. of Santa Baby, personally. Uh, I really, really do not like Blue Christmas. Blue Christmas really? is one by uh, Elvis. Never really uh, liked it. I found a few other people that feel that way too. It's just not one that, not one that I enjoy. All because um, Dean Martin did a cover of it also. That, but it was very, it was very similar style though. I mean, yeah, it was basically just Dino singing. You know, yeah. 
Yeah. You know what? I I talked to, he just said, Rudolph the Redneck goes, Rudy the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I talked to Angie Dickinson the other day, as it were. And, mm. um, uh, she was doing a one-woman night with Angie, and there was a little meet and greet afterwards. And I got an opportunity to talk to her for a minute about Dean Martin. And something that always bugged me about her, about Dean Martin, is that the drunk thing is really good. You know, it's right. really difficult to act drunk, usually, mm-hmm. because when you're when you're drunk, you're, the whole thing is you're trying to act sober. So it's really right. difficult to to act drunk. And I never believed for a second because he also died of like liver and kidney failure. I mean, he'd been, he had been he also died on Christmas Day. So it's relevant. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but she, I asked her, I said, you know, the Dean Martin thing, because she was friends with him. I said, was it, you know, wasn't how can you act that drunk? It had to be real. She goes, no, it wasn't. And I'll tell you that when I first met him the first time, he said, I had a stomach ulcer. The whole thing is an act. I'm not this is not verbatim, but she said that he was that he told her straight off that he acts drunk and the whole thing is an act. I don't I'm not on board because Ulster's a temporary. And I think that during those Dean Martin celebrity roasts, you couldn't even move. Well, um, and speaking of those, you know, the fame, probably the most famous drunk act was Foster Brooks, who would do his great drunk act. But you could see him turn it on and off. Yes. He kind of, when he was Dean done Martin, doing it, you yeah. could see him turn it off. It was kind of like an end scene moment and he would be, and then he would walk. He would, he was or could kind of to say that was an act. I just, my yes. performance has ended. You know what I mean? I don't think Dean yeah. did. No. And <laughs> so. if you watch, uh, what occasion point is the, uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon where they had the big reunion between Martin Lewis and mm-hmm. Sinatra kind of maneuvered it and surprised. If you go back, I remember when it first happened, I was like, oh, it was a really sentimental, emotional thing. If you go back and watch it again, it's on YouTube. It's like D. Martin can barely stand. He mm. he he is slurring so poorly that Jerry Lewis right. just walks away and and stands on the podium and and watches because D. Martin is just cannot even. He he has to be led away by Sinatra, literally standing, couldn't even stand. He I think he had a cigarette in his hand and he burned his coat with it. This is all <laughs> like. You know, sure. not, it was, it's not as all lovely and wonderful as everyone remembers it to be, because mm-hmm. some things are not supposed to be memorialized every second of. Now we can analyze them and can't yeah. leave it. It's just a nice memory. But it is very interesting. I don't believe she told me point blank her mouth to my ears that that it was an act. But I'm, I'm not sure it was. So um, anyway. Another song that I will flip the switch as soon as it comes on is Little Saint Nick by the Beach Boys. <laughs> cannot. <laughs> cannot. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of falsetto anyway, but, but yeah. the, the Beach Boys I can forgive a lot of because I think they're brilliant. But, but Little Saint Nick was like, mm, yeah, I don't, I don't like that song. Um, Last Christmas, you know, that was uh, uh, George Michael. Step into Christmas, Elton John. Uh, wonderful Christmas time, Paul McCartney again. That's at the top of my hate just, list. Yeah, that's the top of my hate list. Yeah, I hate it so much. Which one? Uh, wonderful, wonderful Christmas, Christmas time by Paul McCartney. Yeah. That's number one on my list. Yeah. It's one. It's for to me. It's the epitome of the cynical. We're doing a Christmas song to make money type of song. Yeah, you know what I mean. And it's Paul yeah. McCartney, like his worst instincts. I think yeah. as it's kind of a cynical songwriter. It's just it's great and well, annoying. Yeah. It's interesting because they have a um, – in Britain, like a tradition 
whatever's the Christmas number one single. That's like every year. That's what people mm. look forward to, the Christmas number one. Right. So these are like throw, And that's what know, I think Bill of... Nye is trying to go for, his character is trying yeah. to go for in Love Actually, is make it number one. Yeah. Yeah. So every Christmas, it's got to be a tradition that they have a Christmas number one song. So I think people were just kicking them out. Yeah, I think it was contrived, and mm-hmm. and uh, they're pretty. they're pretty – yeah, it's pretty chewy, bubblegummy kind of kind of stuff, throwaway stuff that didn't expect to last forty years. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not are. the great compositions from the forties, fifties, and sixties that we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. So, not a fan. The second worst song for me <laughs> is the Charlie Brown Christmas. I want to scream when that comes on. I hate that Christmas time. Is it, I hate that song so much. That is that is. Um, that is a a polarizing song. I've come to like it more. It is kind of a sad, almost kind of warped sounding song. Mm. And when it starts, it's like, this is going to last 20 minutes. I know. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's so slow. And just it's just, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> no. No, it's awful. No. No. I don't, I don't think that should be a Christmas classic. I don't think so, personally. Um, so that was, uh, you know, Vince uh, Guaraldi, Guaraldi uh, was the mm-hmm. the great jazz uh, musician who did all the Peanuts music. Um, and he was speaking of people who died young unexpectedly. He um, had a massive heart attack when he was 47 in 1976 mm. and almost died on the stage. He had just uh, played a set at a nightclub in California and um, – he went back to his hotel room and basically collapsed, uh, started feeling sick to his stomach and went to the restroom and collapsed in the bathroom and had died from a massive heart attack. And I think he was another one that just had kind of had an unhealthy lifestyle with, you know, the smoking and eating and everything else and just, and didn't Mm -hmm. take, didn't kind of take it seriously enough, uh, from his doctors uh, about what was, you know, how serious the situation was. But yeah. I, now Band Aid, do they know it's Christmas? That was that's kind of an interesting one. I'm not, I'm not on board either way with it, big time. But I remember when it came out, and it was a big deal because it was Live Aid was you know came from that basically uh, that concept yeah. where they it was so like they, a, um, it was like the We Are the World of Christmas songs. <laughs> Feed the people, stay alive. That one is that one's near the top of my list also because it's just that pretentious rock star. Yes. You know, nonsense. Oh, and let's have Sting have the line where bitter Sting comes out. Oh, that'd be great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's not as bad as Feed the World, that the one they filmed, they did at A&M. That is, to me, so contrived. I mean, that's the point. It is contrived, but, but it's so mm-hmm. – it's just agony. It's just like – you know, all those people – together could could you know get donate half their fortunes why should i have to pay five bucks <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know it's all world hunger yourself i, I mean, love you got the money um, i love all the footage though <laughs> have you seen the footage uh from the we are the world recording sessions where they show like michael jackson is especially hilarious on that because his facial yeah, expressions I, reacting now some of the people are singing he's just like no. That was the height of Ma- Michael Jackson dumb too. Right. I mean, it was like right at the Thriller album time. Yep. And I think they shot it right after the Grammys, so everyone was already exhausted anyway. Mm-hmm. And they ended up starting the session at like midnight or something. Yeah. Uh, with, and uh, and with, see Bob Dylan in there, you know, singing so, "Be the World." <laughs> you can. And he's um uh, uh and and Quincy Jones trying to you know 
probably the only person who could have brought all those huge egos together yeah. and made that yeah. work, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, a legendary gathering of people. That's for sure. Uh, the fact that all those people were in one room together is pretty, pretty amazing. For sure, pretty spectacular. Yeah. So the last song on my list, the number one song I despise the most, the one that makes me dive for the volume button or the off button on the radio is called the Christmas shoes. Uh-huh. Do you know it? I I've heard of it. I can't think of the, I can't think of how it goes right now. Though. It is the most agonizing it's just, it's just so awful it's about a little boy that goes to a department store to buy his shoes buy a pair of shoes um and and it's just oh I, mike i i can't even tell you how bad this song is because it's i don't want to spoil it for people because it'll be a spoiler because if anyone hasn't heard it before they're going to listen to the song and they're going to see exactly what i think I mean. it's been out long well, enough that you can't that nobody can well they, they, he basically is buying his pair of shoes for his dead mother and 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 you go through the whole song not knowing that this mother's dead and it is <laughs> it is just it is so hard to sit through it is slow it is awful it's contrived it is so it, it just makes me insane and people like really my my sister first showed played it for me and she goes oh you're gonna love this song it's so beautiful it's like no it is so it is so oh, i would love to gotta, see the expression on your face the first time you heard it with your sister I, I, like I couldn't expectantly no, it was, it excitedly was, waiting for you to hear it <laughs> it was it was something that i i gave it i gave it a moment and i just thought <laughs> you this is contrived piece it's done by a group called New shoes. I didn't even know who sang it because I never even cared enough. But, Wait, um, they named. They basically named no, their group for the no, song. No, I'm sorry. Basically. The it's oh. a Christian vocal group called New Song. Oh, and yeah, it was sense. released in 2000. And it is about this little boy who. It's 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 well. Get this. The song has appeared on various worst Christmas song lists. The song was named the worst Christmas song ever <laughs> by Jezebel.com, and uh, and it's just it is so so awful. A little boy wants to buy a pair of shoes for his terminally ill mother, and the boy tells the cashier he wants to appear beautiful. Wants her to appear beautiful when she meets Jesus. It is so. <laughs> well, I can't even tell you. You got it. But he it's, wants her to appear beautiful, like in the casket. When she meets Jesus, since he is short on oh, money, he ends up, the okay. narrator ends up paying for the shoes, which reminds him of the true meaning of Christmas. It is just hateful. Which is uh, the to, true meaning of Christmas is buying things at a department store. Buy, a, for, buy shoes for a little boy <laughs> who wants his mother to look beautiful Who when she meets Jesus because she's she terminally to, ill. When she gets to the pearly gates, yeah. Right. So she's going to have those sassy ass shoes. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> nice shoes. Click, 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 click. <laughs> oh, man. That's where we're up on the rooftop. Click, click, click. How embarrassed <laughs> would you be if, the, if they didn't mention them? When you oh. got there, like, you didn't even notice my shoes. I challenge anyone uh, to sit through that whole song. And there's probably people just kind of going, oh, how can you, how dare you say that? It's the most beautiful song ever. And every, there's always people that do say that. Yeah, and sure. obviously you people that disagree with, with, uh, with, with things, but uh, absolute agony. I can't even believe it. Somebody okayed that to record it. And I can't believe it. People are even talking about it like me, but it is so awful that I just, that is my number one. I despise a song ever is uh, in life. I think in life, in life, not just a Christmas song. I think it's like one of the worst songs ever in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because, you know, uh, White Christmas is the biggest selling song in history. 
Mm-hmm. Not, not even just Christmas songs, just of any song. And according to you, uh, the Christmas Shoes is the worst song in history. So we've run the full spectrum. The contrived, sappy, <laughs> pull it, you know, so pulling at the heartstrings. My little mo- my mother is going to die, and she needs shoes, it's, and I can't afford to pay for them. I mean, it's like it's how the pathetic. hallmark Christmas movie so- of Christmas songs. And that is the last thing that, you know, buy morphine, you know, with your money. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Go over the will one more time. Like, you yeah, know, I'm just saying, some planning. I'm just yeah. saying, <laughs> but that's it for my, my, my bad morph- Christmas songs. Well, they couldn't do a song called the Christmas morphine. That would be weird. So they made it about But shoes. a lot of people would really enjoy that, I think. <laughs> Christmas morphine. <laughs> the, the Christmas clonopin. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm sure there are people who agree and disagree with our list. But I will say that uh, one of the ways that we are manipulated by uh, you know TV channels and, uh, and uh, media outlets is with the lists. Whenever they put out a top ten list, whether it's what they call list shows on TV, you know, top ten vacation destinations, top ten beaches, whatever, uh, or you know, any article comes out with a top ten or whatever, they put that out knowing people will disagree and debate it and then talk about it and it will get traffic. Well, I'm not doing it for traffic. I'm just doing it to get it out there that I hate it so much. You have have pure intentions. (laughs) So I would sit in a room by myself and just say to myself, I hate that song. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Right. Um, but, um, all right. Oh, you know, before we go, I just want to say, by your recommendation, I finally watched for the first time the Bishop's Wife. Bishop's yes, wife. with Cary and, Grant uh, and uh, David yeah. Niven. Yes. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed. It was another one that was quite sappy, and you know, but that was the time. It was very Capra esque. Yes. Uh, I was surprised right. that it was known like right off the bat that Cary Grant was an angel, so it's not a spoiler at all. Right. And uh, and it was it was it was a cute. It was a nice Christmas movie. I enjoyed it. I I enjoyed it very. Very much. Yeah, that was my mom's favorite, so I always watch it every year in her honor. And uh, it, it, apparently, it was somewhat controversial because Cary Grant playing an angel uh, was, I like, think, kind of against type. He tended to play kind of darker or gray area act, uh, characters, um, and I, I think that that was somewhat controversial to have him play an angel um, at, in that era. This is what hmm. I think it was like 1949 or something like that. Hmm. Um, but they shot that movie on the lot, the lot over by Formosa Cafe. That oh, really? The, okay. That's where they filmed it. Yeah. Um, you should look up the uh, the trailer for it. It's really wild. Because, you know, trailers back then were so weird. They're not like they are now. It, it was so about star power that it was literally the, the trailer for it is like they're on a st- they're on the back lot to, or they're on the lot together, like outside the the um sound stages and it's Cary Grant and Loretta Young and David Niven and they've realized they forgot to shoot the trailer. So the trailer is them remembering, oh we forgot to shoot the trailer. So then they run over to get on one of the sound stages and there's a security guard there that stops them <laughs> as if that would ever happen. And they have to explain to the security guard what the movie is about. And that's basically the trailer. And then at the end they just show a cl- a quick clip reel with music of some of the big moments from the film with titles over it and that's the whole trailer it's really wild it's very very strange um but i wanted to mention that one also because it ties into our uh universal monsters um because the maid the housekeeper in their home is elsa lanchester uh, bride of frankenstein 
Yes, yes. Who played a servant, as usual. You know, right. She got do. typecasted, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's also another one, too. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but Carolyn Grimes played Zuzu in It's a Wonderful Life, and she plays a daughter in this show, in this movie, too. Oh, really? I never I I think didn't make so. that connection. Do, let's look that up, because I'm pretty sure... Um, yeah, let me look. Bishop's wife. That's her. Yeah. Wow, that is really wild. So yeah, there that's it's it's another that that is the <laughs> one of our podcasts is it's a wonderful life that we did and uh-huh. uh and so there's an association with that and the universal monsters with Elsa Lanchester. Yep. So uh it's interesting that she that little girl played, you know, those uh two iconic Christmas movies. Right. Yeah, if you go to the IMDb page for The Bishop's Wife, the trailer is at the top. So anybody okay. watching this can watch this wild trailer with Cary Grant and David Niven and Loretta Young. Um, I thought another interesting bit about this was it, there were two screenwriters credited on it, and it was, plus it was I think it was based on a novel. Um, but this one screenwriter's name was Leonardo Bercovici, and he ended up getting blacklisted in the 50s, just a few years later. Uh, he was blacklisted uh, by the House Un-American Activities Committee because uh, uh, he ha- was called in to testify. He'd been named by Edward Dimitrik and another another person. And so in 1951, he had to go and testify, and he swore he was not a member of the Communist Party but then invoked his Fifth Amendment rights when they asked if he had ever been in the past. And he got blacklisted as a result. He had to move to Europe uh, for years and try to make a living there. Um I think he was there for like six or seven years um, before he finally came back uh, to work with uh, on a Tyrone Power film that ended up not getting made because Power died. Um, but yeah, I, and it's interesting when you watch the movie from it's every time you there's like layers. It, it's it's a little bit more comp, complex than you realize at first because I've seen it probably thirty times now and I watched it again a couple weeks ago and I still catch little things. That, I did, that I've never caught before, like little lines of dialogue that tie into. There's there's some interesting layers there, but the when he does the line about the you know he's looking at the painting of the cathedral, and Cary Grant says you know that big roof could make so many little roofs. Mm-hmm. That is you know and then you realize the guy that wrote that got blacklisted for you know being a communist. It, it is it, there's an interest. It's just interesting the whole. Sure. You know what yeah. I mean? It's very because yeah. uh, the, the the I don't want to give away the movie to anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But the setup is that Niven plays a bishop, uh, and he's trying to build this huge cathedral, and he's trying to woo this rich woman who widow who's going to give him the money to make the cathedral, but she wants to make it all about her dead husband. And he wants it basically to be in a monument. So David Niven mm-hmm. asks for help. He prays for help. And Cary Grant comes down as an angel to help him. But, of course, not in the way that he expects. And that's what the movie is all about. So, yeah. Yeah. That's cute. I, I enjoyed the movie. I did very mm-hmm. much so. Well, good. Did we do it? Did we I do Christmas? I'm going to go watch Pee Wee's Christmas special now. <laughs> <laughs> a palate cleanser <laughs> another one of our podcasts <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly i love it we do like our christmas don't we so uh thanks again uh we always have to do a shout out to our patreon supporters um we keep adding new ones and uh, we're going to do another uh sh- exclusive show for them probably next week so look mm-hmm. out for that but we wanted to get this out in time for christmas um so again, thanks to all our Patreon supporters and thanks to everyone else. Thanks to all of you for listening to our show every week or every month. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas or whatever you happy, happy holidays, holidays, happy New Year, everything yep. else like that. Put on those Festivus. those Christmas shoes. And on that, uh, we'll see you on the next one. <laughs> Thanks for watching, you guys. Thanks. This has been an episode of the Dearly Departed Podcast. Dig up more episodes at dearlydepartedpod.com and on iTunes and Google Play. See you next time. <laughs>